Uh, please take your Bibles and uh, open them to uh, Hebrews. We're going to look today at the latter verses in uh, verse 4 and then uh, chapter 5 through verse 10. I know Jonathan, I really appreciate Jonathan, our Minister of Education, uh, filling in for me the last two Sundays and uh, his ability to uh, continue our book study of uh, Hebrews. And I know last Sunday uh, he preached on uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 4 verses uh, 14 uh, through 16. Uh, But I do want to begin there. I won't go into great detail in those verses since he already dealt with them. But uh, there's an important connection with the end of uh, chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5. I hope you picked up a copy of your uh, sermon uh, notes and uh, you'll follow along. I do not have a PowerPoint this morning. Do not have a PowerPoint since I was uh, just coming back from out of town. Didn't have the opportunity to get that ready. So we'll be working strictly off the sermon notes. And notice uh, there in your sermon notes, I uh, just put a very uh, simple review. Uh, just make sure we uh, sort of realize what we've already covered and uh, the occasion in which the book was written and uh, the context. So just look at that with me first. Uh, the book of Hebrews, of course, was written to Jewish Christians who, due to severe persecution, were tempted to deny Christ by returning to their former Jewish religion in order to save their lives. That's a key in understanding this book. In other words, there was a reason the author wrote this book, and he was wanting to challenge them. He knew that they were frightened. He knew that they were uh, weary of uh, battling a hostile society that was uh, after them. Uh, Nero would have been emperor of the Roman Empire at that time, And it was during his reign that the persecution greatly intensified, which would include torture, imprisonment, and even the possibility of martyrdom. So they were struggling, struggling with the cost of following Christ and even tempted to deny Christ, return to their former Judaism. Therefore, as we continue with the statement in your notes, the writer of Hebrews emphasizes the supremacy of Christ over the old religion in order to demonstrate that what they gain in following Christ far outweighs the cost of following Christ. Uh, The thought that sort of runs throughout the book is, why would you ever give up the greater for the lesser? And he emphasizes that by making comparisons throughout the book, how Jesus is superior, Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, and only a fool would give up that prize for a lesser uh, prize. And then in chapters 1 and 2, the writer emphasizes Christ's supremacy over the Old Testament prophets and angels as the eternal Son of God who provides a perfect salvation. And then in chapters 3 and 4, we see Christ's supremacy over Moses and Joshua, two of the key leaders in the Old Testament. Uh, And Jesus being the builder of God's house, over God's house, who leads God's people to a perfect rest. And then now in chapter 5, we'll find four proofs that are given of Christ's supremacy over Aaron as the perfect high priest. So uh, this morning we want to look at these four proofs that the writer gives that Jesus is high priest has, uh, is much more superior, much greater, much better uh, than the priesthood 
that was initiated, inaugurated uh, through Aaron in the Old Testament. So look at the very first uh, proof, and it is Jesus Christ has a superior title. And uh, this is where we want to uh, focus in on verses 14 through 16. Notice it says there, since then, we have a, and here's the title, a great high priest. Jesus is the only one in the Scripture that has ever given that designation, the great high priest. No Old Testament high priest or priest ever knew that type of designation. So he's called the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Now, in what way is Jesus greater? And you notice I've given you three ways. Number one, his person is greater. Jesus unites deity and humanity. That's those two blanks. Jesus unites deity and humanity so that he can bring people to God and then he can bring to the people all that God has for them. You see the phrase, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus was his earthly name. Jesus means Savior. It refers to the fact that he became a man in order to die on the cross for the penalty of our sin, to cancel out our sin debt, to impute his righteousness to us, to give us a right standing before God for all of those who put their trust and their faith in him. The Son of God, of course, that relates to his deity. So in Jesus Christ... We see his person is greater than any of the Old Testament prophets because he was the God-man. And being the God-man, he was the perfect mediator between God and man in order to bring us to the Lord and then receiving from God all his blessings for us. His position is greater. His position is greater. How much better, think about this, to have a high priest who ministers in the true heavenly tabernacle and is enthroned on a throne of grace. Uh, We read there in verse 14 that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. See, after Jesus made that sacrificial death, God raised him from the dead and he ascended to heaven itself, to the heavenly tabernacle. And the earthly tabernacle was what? Just a picture of that, just a type, just a shadow. But he now is in the true heavenly tabernacle, and not only in that tabernacle, but enthroned. Therefore, draw near with confidence to the, what? Throne of grace. So after Jesus Christ made the final sacrifice, are any sacrifices needed beyond Jesus? No. After the final sacrifice, he ascended into heaven to be what? The final high priest. Uh, He's the last. He's the final And uh, he made obsolete the Old Testament priesthood because in Christ, all of that was fulfilled in him. All the sacrifices, all the gifts, all the ceremonies uh, in the Old Testament were just pictures of Christ, uh, preparing the people for Jesus. Now the real deal had come, had made the sacrifice, ascended to heaven to be our high priest. And notice also his ministry is greater. Not only is his person greater, his position greater, but his ministry is greater. He ministers mercy and grace. 
Folks, that's good news for us. He ministers mercy and grace to those who come to Him for help. In mercy, Jesus does not give us what we deserve. Amen? We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's fury. We deserve God's condemnation. We deserve hell. But in His mercy, He does not give us what we deserve. But in grace, He gives us what we what? Do not deserve. Uh, The end of verse 16 says that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus is superior to the Old Testament priesthood because he has a superior title, indicating that his person is greater, his position is greater, his ministry is greater. And now we move into chapter 5, where we have this... uh, uh, contrast made between Jesus and Aaron. And uh, just sort of to lay a foundation, what we find in chapter 5, he gives the three fundamental qualifications of a priest. And of course, he shows how Aaron in the Old Testament priesthood met those qualifications, but how even greater those qualifications were met in the person of Jesus. And let me just give you the three qualifications. The first one was basically solidarity with man. In other words, a priest had to be a man. He had to be selected from the people. Why? Because the basic function of a priest was to represent man before God. That was his basic function, to represent man to God. And so a priest had to be a man, selected among the people, and Selected by God. Not anyone could serve as a priest. You remember in Old Testament there were uh, different occasions where people tried uh, to assume the priesthood. You remember Saul who uh, uh, got impatient waiting for Samuel the priest. And uh, when Samuel didn't show up in a timely fashion, uh, he took over the priestly duties to offer the sacrifice. And of course God judged him and brought his kingdom down. You remember King Uzziah who uh, tried to burn incense in the temple, and he was struck with leprosy uh, to the day of his death. Uh, you remember there was a rebellion in the, uh, old, in the uh, wilderness in the Old Testament where a large group of people tried to assume the priesthood. Remember, God caused the earth to open up, and they were swallowed and uh, lost uh, their lives. So he had to be a man, but he had to be selected by God. The, the second thing was sympathy, this matter of sympathy. Uh, a priest was required uh, to have great sympathy towards the people that he represented, great love, uh, great understanding of their condition, because, again, he was representing them uh, to God. And then the third was, had to do with sacrifices. Of course, the Old Testament uh, priests offered the sacrifices, which could only cover the sins of the people, but praise God, in Jesus we have a sacrifice that, what, cleanses us from all sin. So uh, follow with me, and we'll see the uh, remaining proofs of Jesus being superior than Aaron. And number two there in your notes, Jesus Christ has a superior ordination. Superior ordination or selection. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men. That's what we were just talking about. He's appointed what? By God. For what purpose? 
on behalf of the men, to represent men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for, for sins. And then look at verses 4 and 6. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Just as he says also in another passage, Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, chapter five, uh, verse 5 there, Thou art my son, uh, today I have begotten thee. Uh, that is a quote of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And the thing that we see here, there in your notes, ordained by the Father to become high priest, Jesus had to offer himself as the sacrifice, something that no Old Testament priest ever could do because they were not sinless, of course. He offered himself as the sacrifice for man's sin and then rose from the dead. And we do know that that phrase, today I have begotten thee, refers to his resurrection. Uh, Keep your finger in Hebrews 5. Turn over to Acts 13. As I mentioned, that's a quote of Psalm 2-7 which is a prophetic psalm concerning Christ and his ministry. But that phrase is interpreted for us in Acts 13 uh, by the apostle uh, Paul. Look at verses 32 and 33. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled his promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So that phrase, today I have begotten thee, it's not talking about Jesus having a beginning. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He has no beginning, he has no end. He's eternal, he's forever. But he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has a greater ordination because he was ordained by God the Father himself And he became a high priest only after offering himself as the sacrifice for man's sin and being raised from the dead. Notice also he's ordained a high priest forever. Verse 6 says, thou art a priest forever. Therefore he can give his people what? Salvation forever. Again, good news. Ordained a high priest forever. Therefore he can give his people salvation forever. Turn over to uh, Hebrews 7. Look at verses uh, 23 and 25 that uh, drives this home in a much even clearer pointed way. Hebrews 7 verse 23. It says, And the former priest, the Old Testament priest, Aaron, on the one hand existed in great numbers because they were prevented by what? Death from continuing. But he, Jesus on the other hand, Because he abides forever, holds his priesthood, what? Permanently. Hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is the only priest that was ordained to be a priest forever. And he also, the next point, he was ordained into a different order than the Old Testament priest. 
he was ordained to the order of Melchizedek, which, and here's the key, which unites the office of king and priest, which had never happened before in all of history. Uh, Priests could never move into the realm of royalty, nor could royalty move into the realm of the priest. They were clearly divided in the Old Testament scriptures. But Jesus unites the two. He becomes both king and priest. Now, Melchizedek is only mentioned twice in the scriptures. He's a a king and a priest that appears uh, during the time of Abraham. Uh, He's referred to in Psalm 110 and then here in the book of Hebrews. Now, when we get to chapter 7, we will talk a lot more about Melchizedek, and because of our time limitations this morning, we'll just save that for then. The most important thing for you to know right now is that the unique thing about Melchizedek is that, again, he was both a king and he was a prince. And in the same way, Jesus is both king and prince. As we've seen, he was exalted and enthroned uh, on that throne of, of grace. Uh, Look at the third proof that Jesus is superior than the Aaron priesthood. Jesus Christ has a greater sympathy. Jesus Christ has a greater sympathy for man. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Again, talking about the priest, it says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. It's talking about how the Old Testament priest could have sympathy towards the people they represented because they dealt with the same weaknesses and infirmities and failures and sins that the people dealt with. And then look at uh, verses 7 and 8, referring to Jesus. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son... He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, what was it that taught Jesus sympathy for men? Suffering. That's it, suffering. And we believe in verse 7 that it's an actual reference to his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, That probably clearer than any other place demonstrates his identity with the human race and our weaknesses and, uh, and his struggle. Uh, turn over to Mark 13. We'll just touch on this very, very briefly. Again, verse 7 is a reference to Gethsemane, talking about how he offered up prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to one who was able to save him out of death, and he was heard because of his piety. Um, look at Mark 14, look at verse 32. I just want you to see Jesus' humanity, what he experienced, which gives him the ability to relate to you and I in our trials and difficulties. It says, And they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed. Let me just pause right there. That term, very distressed, literally means to be struck with terror. In other words, Jesus, in his manhood, was terrified. He was frightened by what lay ahead. 
which was the cross, when he would bear the sins of all humanity and pay that sin debt off. So it says he was struck with terror. And then notice it says he was troubled. That word trouble means that he was filled with unrest. In other words, he was anxious. He was agitated. Uh, No rest in his mind. No rest in his soul and in his heart. And then in verse 34, and he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Uh, This is talking about the fact that grief literally enveloped him. It surrounded him. It saturated his conscious mind. Uh, the, The grief was so deep that it was as if death itself had wrapped its uh, arms uh, upon him and, uh, and was just swallowing him, him up. And then uh, verse 35, and he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground. That's in the imperfect tense, which means that he was continually falling to the ground. In other words, this was such a heavy weight, he would try to rise, and, he, and the, just the weight, the burden of the stress and the fear and the grief threw him to the ground. And of course, you know the stress was so great that Luke tells us he what? Sweat drops of blood. And then, of course, he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. So Jesus was taught sympathy for men through his sufferings. He can relate to you and I because he became one of us. He had to deal with the weaknesses and the limitations of human flesh. Now, praise God, he met every test and he remained sinless so he could be that perfect sacrifice for you and I. Now, what was the lesson that he learned in his suffering? Obedience. It says he learned obedience from the things that he suffered in verse 8. And that is the whole point of the Gethsemane experience. That despite the fact that he was terrified, frightened, anxious, depressed, grieving, everything in him was telling him to run, to escape. Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but what? Thine be done. And he embraced the cross out of obedience to his father, uh, out of love for you and I to die, to pay the penalty uh, for our sin. Now, what was the result? A perfect high priest. A perfect high priest who can relate to us in our suffering, who understands temptation because he was tempted, as we saw earlier in Hebrews 4, in every point, even as we are. And then look at the fourth proof of Jesus being superior to the Aaron priesthood. Uh, Not only does he have a greater title, not only does he have a superior ordination, not only does he have a greater sympathy, but he also has offered a superior sacrifice. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 3. It says, and because of it, he, talking about the Old Testament priest, is obligated to offer sacrifice for sins as for the people, and what? Also for himself. In other words, the Old Testament priests, they were sinners just like you and I. And so he says, yes, they represented the people. Yes, they offered sacrifices to God on behalf of the people to cover their sin. But because they were sinners, they first had to offer sacrifices for themselves. For example, on the Day of Atonement. Remember, there was only one day in the entire year 
where anyone could go into the immediate presence of God in the tabernacle, into that inner sanctum, into the Holy of Holies. And only one person could do that, the high priest. But before the high priest could go in, he first had to make sacrifice for what? His own sin, before he could make sacrifice for the sins uh, of the people. But of course, Jesus was sinless, and there was no need for him to make sacrifice for himself, and that's the reason he could make a sacrifice for your sins and my sins. And then look at verses 9 and 10. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus had to offer no sacrifice for himself since he was what? Sinless. Jesus had to offer no sacrifice for himself since he was sinless. And Jesus' sacrifice, the next point, was once and for all. In which he did away with the Old Testament sacrificial system. He did away with the Old Testament priesthood system. Because again, he was that final once and for all uh, sacrifice. Whereas the Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated. Go back to uh, Hebrews 7 again. In a great cross-reference. Hebrews 7, look at verses, uh, uh, beginning at verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, referring to Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, the Old Testament priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So again, whereas the Old Testament sacrificial system had to be continually repeated day after day after day after day, Jesus ended it because he was that final sacrifice. And as that final sacrifice, he became our great high priest who experientially knew suffering, experientially learned obedience. Prior to that, by means of his omniscience, he knew about suffering. He knew about obedience. But in becoming a man, he experienced suffering. He experienced obedience in the midst of that suffering, which gives him the ability to, unite, to uh, relate to you and I. Now, key lessons, key lessons as we sum this up on how to ride the storms of life. Now, keep in mind, don't forget this. This book was written, as we've mentioned, to Jewish Christians who were struggling in their faith. The purpose of this book is to encourage them to press on, to encourage them not to retreat, not to try to escape the persecution, but to endure it and in the midst of it remain faithful to Christ and to stay true to Him. And so you always have to keep that in mind as you go through this book so that it doesn't become some sort of just academic study. Uh, This truth was being uh, given to them to apply to their situation that they were in, and, and notice the application here to them and to us as well. Number one, confess Christ. See, what was their temptation? We've already seen this. Their temptation was to stop confessing Christ publicly because of the imminent danger that it put them in, because they were in a hostile environment. Nero was after the Christians to torture them, imprison them, kill them. So they became very frightened. You'd become very frightened. I'd become very frightened. 
And in that fear and in the stress of that moment, they were tempted to, well, we'll just keep quiet. And we'll just, you know, worship quietly, but we'll eliminate our confession of Christ. And again, they were even tempted to go back to the old Judaism, which was a much safer route uh, for for them. Uh, But notice, no need to retreat from our confession of faith in Jesus. Why? Because we can come boldly into God's presence to get the help we need from our great high priest. Amen? See, that's the message that he's giving. He's saying, no need to retreat when you can go forward right into God's presence to get the strength that you need in your weakness, to get the courage that you need in your fear, uh, to continue to move forward, to continue to endure, to continue to be faithful. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Don't deny it. Don't retreat from it. You hold fast, and God will be with you. Look at the second application. Lean on Christ. Not only confess Christ, but of course, lean on Christ. Since Christ became one of us, He really does understand our weakness and struggles and knows how to help. 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Think of the Hebrew Christians. They were suffering persecution. They possibly would be tortured. They possibly would be imprisoned. They possibly would lose their lives. Did Jesus experience that? Yes. Was Jesus tortured? Yes. Was he imprisoned? Yes. Was he put to death? Yes. On a cross. And as we saw in Gethsemane, did Jesus get frightened? Yes. Did Jesus know stress? Did he know anxiety? Did he know deep grief? Did everything in him want to say, run the other way? Yes, he understood. He wasn't mad at their struggle. He wasn't angry with their struggle. He understood the temptation because he experienced it himself. And so the message here is lean on Christ. Because he understands the struggle. And because he understands the struggle. And because he faced it and was victorious. He can give you the help you need to be victorious as well. And then look at the last and most important application. Pray to Christ. Pray to Christ. Because prayer is our means to receive God's help. Prayer is what plugs you in to the person and the power of God. It's through prayer that His strength is perfected in your weakness, in your human frailty. It's through prayer that as you get plugged into God, you become a light for Jesus to put Him on display even in the darkest hour. Verse 16 of chapter 4, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help him in time of need. So there's the application. Confess Christ. Lean on Christ. Pray to Christ. And this applies to you and I. What struggles are you facing right now? What temptations are you facing right now? We'll realize Jesus understands. Jesus is sympathizing with you. And therefore, you don't need to be afraid to come to Him. 
You know, one of the greatest messages in the book of Hebrews is that a believer is safe in the presence of God. You're safe in the presence. Even when you deny Him, even when you fail, where's the only place to go for remedy and relief? His presence. Now, of course, it requires that you be totally open, you're totally honest, totally transparent. But the point I'm making is you can be honest, you can be transparent about the worst of your sins and the greatest of your failures because he already paid the penalty for that. He already incurred God's wrath for that. And therefore, you're safe in God's presence. So you don't run from God, you run to God in your struggles. You run to God even in your failure and your sin. Because again, He's the only one that has the ability to provide remedy and relief. He's the only one that can give you mercy and grace. And that's exactly what you will receive by going to Him. Mercy. He he will not give you what you deserve. But praise God, He's going to give you grace. He will give you what you don't deserve. Because that's the kind of God that we are, that we have. Father, thank you for uh, uh, this marvelous truth today about Jesus, our great high priest, uh, being superior uh, to Aaron and the Old Testament earthly uh, priesthood. And Father, thank you that in Jesus we have a high priest at your right hand that represents us that's on our side, that dispenses mercy and grace, that is an advocate for us, an intercessor for us. And he's that advocate, he's that intercessor, he's that supporter, he's that encourager 24-7. So, Father, give us courage to maintain our confession of Christ as we lean on him, as in our struggles, in our pain, in our fear, like Jesus in Gethsemane, we would fall on our faces and say, not my will, but thine be done, uh, trusting that you'll provide the leadership that's needed, the guidance that's needed, the provision that's needed, the empowerment that's needed uh, to accomplish your will. So may we see, like these Hebrew Christians, uh, that we need not retreat, no matter what we're facing, but we can go forward knowing and that we are safe in your presence, and not only safe in your presence, but there in your presence we'll receive all that we need uh, to encounter the trials and struggles of life, for which in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.